As the summers have begun, we did a four-part series on the one another's. Nick Runlet led us for most of that, and then last week, Nick Rogers led us in Psalms chapter 34. And if you remember the one another's about how we should love one another and care for one another, and then you read this psalm today, and this one hits just a little different, does it not? It's kind of like Nick Runlet was the good cop, and guess who I am? Don't say it. Should we look at this psalm, you think, well, what's the, what's the problem? And, and stated maybe really succinctly, it's this. When the righteous suffer at the hands of the wicked. We know that God is righteous and he is good and he cares for his servants. But what happens? Because we do. The righteous do suffer. And the question is, God, what will you do? Will you do what you said you would do in your promises? Will you be faithful to your covenant and to your character? So the main point is this. Give it to you up front. God delights, God delights in vindicating his righteous servants from the wicked. Therefore, he will be praised for his greatness. So it's very much a psalm about God, but it has deep implications for us. So as we start out, um, probably not the normal way you begin most of your prayers. Fight, contend. Look down in chapter 35, verse 1. Not how Nick Rogers prayed for us in the pastoral prayer. Probably not how you pray most of the times when you're together at small group. Maybe in your home. Say, God, I didn't quite say it this way. And I need you to slap somebody upside the head for me today. Like, again, that's not quite what he's saying. Or it might be like some of you high school students who got lots of cash come in these days for our high school grads. Good for you. And a check from grandma in the 100, 200 or upwards range. And grandma has promised you some money because that's on that paper. And you expect that when you click that whatever you do on your app and that money goes into your account, that that money's actually going to show up. In some ways, this is David's request. God, you have made some promises to your servants and about yourself. I'm not feeling it. I'm not seeing it, not experiencing it. God, what will you do? This psalm is deeply rooted in some basic beliefs about God, about theology, that God will act according to his character and promises. And maybe you want to write that down or just think about that statement. God will act according to his character and his promises. He is good, he is in control, and he does what is right. But can you admit with me and David here this morning, sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? It doesn't feel real good. We don't see all of that goodness fully worked out in the here and now. So we look that back at like Psalms in general, a couple things before we get to 35. Psalm chapter 1, it talks about the wicked being like what? Like the chaff. Now, I was a missionary in Zambia for a number of years. My family's over here one time, and yes, only one time, so don't feel too sorry for me. We went out with a friend of mine as he harvested his beans out there in the field, and they're all kind of dried up, and they're out there, so we're kind of raking these huge stacks together, and you get a big stick. It's fun for about 19 seconds <laughs> of beating this big stack of just kind of like rubbish. What comes out is you're opening those pods up, and all the beans go to the bottom. You kind of take away the big stuff, and you kind of gather that up. you got chaff, you got dirt, you got everything, and then you get this big five-gallon bucket, and you're pouring that bucket up high, hopefully on a windy day, into the bucket on the bottom slowly so that the wind can carry the chaff away. So we're used to the wicked being like. And what's the picture there in Psalm 1 of the righteous? They're like a strong tree planted by rivers of water, deep roots, nourished by all this water good things are happening to them we like psalm 18 we read about god being our rock and our fortress our refuge our deliverer saving us from our enemies we like psalm 23 don't we 
The Lord is our shepherd. He shepherds us. He comforts us. He's holding this cute little lamb. We are that lamb. Even big guys. He protects us. He restores us. He feeds us. We don't have any reason to fear because God is our shepherd. What's following us? Goodness and mercy. Well, I want to introduce you, if you're not familiar already, to what is an imprecatory psalm? I can tell some of you when you sat down, you're like, I just hope this guy deals with imprecatory psalms today. Been wondering about that. Are used to psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of praise. So if you're Instagram strolling on the psalms in the morning and you got about 42 seconds before you head out for work, you're not going to land on this one for very long. Because it's a little harder. But let's dig into it. What is an imprecatory psalm? It's saying this, God, you are righteous. I am your child, your servant. I have been unjustly wronged. God, act according to your character. Justly deal with my enemy who has intentionally harmed me. Listen and act. It's in your hands, not mine. So there's something that's wrong. You have the character and the wisdom to assess it. And really, I'm laying it at your feet. God, you deal with this situation. It's asking God to take up your righteous cause in his time and in his way and for his name. Because the reality is, David in this psalm is a sufferer at the hands of people who did stuff on purpose. When you were a child, all of us did it. And if you have children, when your children come to you with a grievance that their sibling has brought, they usually come to you and they say, they did this, that, and the other. And what are the last little phrase that they always say? They did it on purpose. Meaning what? Their three-year-old younger sister has been plotting evil since the day she was born. <laughs> She's gotten together with all her little kindergarten buddies in preschool, and they've made a plan to make the older child's life absolutely miserable. And they have done it what? On purpose. Purpose. It's not so funny when it's grown-ups plotting evil on purpose and wickedness. What this is not, this is not a request of David here, give me full vent to my anger and my rage. Let me just cuss somebody out. Let me just take out my physical anger and pummel somebody like I would do a punching bag. It's also not asking God to implement my judgment. Like, God, you serve me. This is what I think would ought to happen. You serve me, you do that. It's not asking for the suffering of another so I can mock or rejoice or find some sick satisfaction. Remember how Jonah ended the book of Jonah? Where is he sitting? He's sitting up on a mountain looking down at Nineveh and what's he hoping for? If you can imagine him, he's sitting there eating popcorn. I don't know that it said that, but he's, he's under this gourd and he's looking down and what's he hoping his hope is, I want to see Nineveh turn to ashes. I want to see God implement that. That's not what's going on here in this passage. So think about the man who wrote this, David. Who were some of his enemies? He fought the Philistines early. That was after already a couple bears and lions. He fought Goliath. But there were some internal enemies that he dealt with who were quite treacherous. Who were those? One was the first king of Israel, Saul. And another was his own son, Absalom, who tried to rip and tear the kingdom away. Did David have opportunity to take out vengeance on Saul in particular? In fact, not just one time, but two times, right? In that awkward situation where Saul is in the cave, what did David say? I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Another time, who caused the deep sleep to fall on the camp where Saul was? 
It was the Lord. You would think, well, obviously, God put him to sleep. He wants me to kill him. They walk into the camp. They take a few things from around the king's head. What would he have had to do? Just turn his head, give a nod, and a spear would have been through Saul's head. All this trouble would have gone away. But he didn't do that. So Paul, sorry, I knew I was going to say that. David is walking out in his life what he's praying for here. Look with me again at chapter 35. I'm going to invite you to keep your Bible open as we constantly go back to the Word to see what David prays here. So the first point today is the request. And this is the verses 1 to 3. The request, Lord, fight for me. It says here, Psalms 35, 1 to 3. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. So we see that word contend or fight twice and then again fight and holding the shield and rising to help and drawing the spear. Again, not a normal prayer. Is this shocking? Is it mean-spirited? Does David need to repent? Is he just letting off steam? Is he sinning? Is he out of control? We'll find out some of those things. One, remember this is poetry. And I think that's why we connect so well with the Psalms, do we not? Because from the heights of joy to the deepest personal pain and everything in between, we see the raw emotions coming out. So we start to think if this is the request, like, why does David want this? Who does he want God to fight? And what exactly do they do? And can it really be that bad? Before we get the answer to that, we, we get number two here. And this is the result. And what I mean by result is, if God acts according to David's request, what would David hope would happen to his enemies? So he doesn't give us the reason quite yet. We're getting there. But he would desire shame and disappointment and destruction. Let's look at that. Just scan quickly verses 4 to 8. Look at the first word. Everybody with your heads down there looking at the text. If you'll see over and over again on that left side, it says, let, 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 let. So he's like, allow this to happen. Let me read that again, 4 to 8. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for me. Let destruction come upon them when he does not know it. Let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. More than a simple sibling spat, is it not? Something's going on and he's wishing something pretty horrible. One thing we see over and again is that word shame. Shame is a public thing. Guilt is an internal feeling that you have when you've broken the law. It's like a legal reality. Shame is very much a relational problem because you have broken the law, a relationship with a person, with an authority, and it's in front of others. So here he's saying, not only do I want them to have some judgment, but I want like everyone to know about it. Help them to be humiliated. Then he gives all these examples. Follow along with me here. One is the chaff. We talked about that. Let them be blown away like the wind. The next one is kind of like a dark horror type movie. Let their path not only be dark, add to that slippery, 
and go ahead and give him an angel of the Lord in pursuit. Something's happening here. The next one is let destruction come upon them without warning. It's like wishing someone's house would fall down on them in the night when they don't know it because of an earthquake and they're gone. You encouraged yet? Let them get caught in a net like an animal. They've set a trap. Let them fall into it. In some ways, here's what David is doing as we begin to see. Lord, would you show them the same kindness that they showed me? And they didn't show a lot of kindness. The last one here is that they would fall into a pit. Turn over to verse 26. And in 26, you'll see that same word, let, come up again. It says, let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. So it's like, let their clothing be what? Let their clothing, like what they put on, be shame and disappointment. Look at verse 19 and then verse 29. Here we get some let nots. Like, don't let these things happen to me. Look at verse 19. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. Jump down to verse 25. You'll see some more nots. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Here's what David is saying. I have an enemy. The harm that they're doing is real. They have these evil plans. Let them not rejoice over me. Don't let them be like the Atlanta Braves fan. I know we've got some over here who come into Cincinnati, who take a couple of games from the Reds. I don't know how many games it was and boast and are loud and annoying on their way out of the stadium to all the home Red fans. Don't allow them, getting back to the text now, leaving the Braves, to publicly celebrate a victory over the righteous. I'm not saying the Reds are the righteous. I left that. Don't let them wink. Don't let them say, I told you so. Don't let them act cute or annoying or make a fool of me or mock me. Don't let them get their desire. Don't add fuel to their already devious plans and publicly humiliate me. Well, we're going, wow, what in the world is going on? What is so bad and what are we in 2023 supposed to take away from this? Well, let's move to the third point where we begin to see some of the reason why. So there's this request, God, fight for me. Then he gives the reason here. Look with me in the text quickly. The wicked plot evil against me. So let's see some of their actions. Look in verse 3 and do look with me as I mentioned the verses. In verse 3 it says they're pursuing him. Verse 4, they're devising evil. They have a plan. Verse 7, they have hit a net. They have no cause. Isn't it the worst when, like when you suffer and you know you did something foolish or you were sinful, you're like, I can understand that. But when you do good to someone else, do you not expect good to be returned? When you show kindness, gratefulness, and you go out of your way to serve someone, to help someone, they said there was no cause. Verse 11, it says they were a malicious witness. So intentionally trying to hurt, to make it as painful as possible, to make it miserable. Verse 12, again, he mentioned repaying evil for good. Can I just take a quick time out to say, can we not think of Jesus during this time as well? Like you're not going to 
find the name Jesus right here, and this is not necessarily an intentional prophecy about Jesus, but as David talks about his suffering at the hands of others when he didn't do anything wrong, did Jesus ever sin? Of course we know he did not. Did Jesus ever wrong anyone? Would ever, anyone have ever had a reason to be angry, to hate, to spit on, to pull his beard, to put the nails into his feet and to his hands and to crucify him until he died? There was no reason. So even as we kind of process how is David thinking about this and how do we deal with our own lament and grief over others' sin towards us, to remember Jesus here. Verse 15, they rejoiced at his stumbling. They mocked. Look at verse 16. They gnash their teeth. They threaten and tear and injure. Again, verse 19, they hated him without a cause. Verse 19 and 20, they deceived him. There was no peace. They were just hoping to catch him fail. They were just waiting and longing to see him slip and to fall. In verse 26, they longed to rejoice at his calamity. So that's their actions, but what about David's actions toward them? Which makes it all the more painful, because look at verse 13 and 14. I'm going to read that. Look with me there, Psalms 35, verse 13. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. So David apparently knew at least some of these, and what did he do? He empathized with them, so much so that he took off his royal robes and he put on sackcloth, the clothing of mourning and suffering. He fasted, he prayed for them, he grieved with them. He mourned like family. He used the words friend and brother and mother. He bowed down. He did what is really the best thing that any of us could do. What do we do when we're in times of suffering? What do we want when there's a loved one who has passed away? Often it's not the words that you say in those moments. It's often you're just with me. When someone dies, what's some of your first thought? I want my brother. I want my mother. I want my family. I want my dearest friends. I want my pastor. I want people just to be with me. If you go with a lot of words, that's probably foolish. And this is what David did. David loved these well. Then he went and he sat. He identified with them. So as you think about what these people did, the wicked did to David and what he had done to them and what he got in response, how do you feel about David's request for God to fight now? It feels a lot more justified. In fact, if it was you and me, we might even be harsher. Let me give us as a church and to me myself a caution right here. Don't lump every unkind word or grievance into this category of this psalm right here. Just because you got offended... Someone ate the last piece of the cheesecake, which is rude, and it wasn't me, I promise. <laughs> or you get upset about something, or just traffic, like dumb stuff, like who cares? Th that's not what's going on here. So let's not take this as a license to someone upset me, so now I'm like going to pray God's condemnation on them. That's not at all what's going on. What he's dealing with is he knows that God is just, God's justice is delayed, and it hasn't been realized in his life. This is not a communication problem. This is not merely a misunderstanding. This is evil. And can I tell you, the world does not have that category. They want to tell you that anything you do wrong or someone else does wrong, and, and we buy into this, do we not? 
that, oh, well, I didn't mean it that way. Or I was, I was busy, as if like if you're busy, like that just allows you to be a complete jerk for a little bit. Or if you knew what was going on with this, or I have this situation over here, or it's because of education, or it's because of lack of opportunity, or it's this. We make so many excuses, and can we just say there is real evil in the world? There are times when you and I, we need to admit, no, it wasn't a communication problem. I actually meant what I said, and I am a sinner, and that was horrible, and I repent of that. There is no excuse for doing that. We all need to remember that. I need to remember that. These people publicly enjoyed and gloated and mocked David's trouble. There was a down soldier, and he was being kicked and continuing to be harmed. This is the situation. So I sure wish there was hope in this psalm, and there is. We should not be surprised. And that brings us to the fourth point, the rescue of the righteous. God rescues the righteous. Look with me in verse number three. In the midst of calling for God to contend and fight and draw the spear, the end of verse three says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. So David's desire is for his own personal salvation. He knows that it's coming. It's trusting that it's coming. If you read all the surrounding Psalms, you'll already see like David confesses and is forgiven of his own sin. He saves the nation. He saves individuals. He is constantly faithful. So David knows this. It's not like the Psalm is just out in left field somewhere. Look at verse nine as well. So verse three says, say to my soul, I'm your salvation. Look at verse nine. There's an expectation then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. So there's an expectation. When you're in the midst of suffering and you don't see God's character and promises fully worked out, that is an opportunity for me and for you and for us as a church to hope and have our faith increase. God will do in his timing, in his way, what he says you will do. It's hard to think when you're suffering, though, that it's a faith problem, right? Or to even think that like faith is the solution. Look at verse 27 and 28. Like how does this psalm end? So after he says all these let, let, let about shame and disappointment. Turn with me to verse 27 and 28. It says this. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord. Did you sing that this morning? Whether you knew it or not, you did, if you're singing. We sing that multiple times this morning to say what? Great is the Lord. The Lord is great. Who does what? The Lord delights in the welfare of his servant. Can I just say to you, I imagine, I know, there are people in this room who are suffering because of the sin of others. All of us at some point, some more, some less, have suffered because of the sin of others. Your heavenly Father, he sees your suffering and he cares. And he delights in your welfare, whether or not you have experienced that rescue now or whether that rescue is coming in the future. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day. This whole call to the Lord, how can he say these things? He knows that the Lord is righteous. This is the key characteristic of God that really carries this whole psalm. God, you are righteous. I'm pleading because of your righteousness. I'm in danger of making judgment myself. These are all the things I want, but ultimately what am I doing? I'm laying my request and my hurt and my pain and my need for what is just. 
I'm laying that at the foot of the cross, trusting you will do the right thing in the right time, in the right way. Let's look at some applications for the church today, a couple of practical things that I think will help us. Here's number one. What are some things that you and I can take away from this message today? And the first one is that problems, persecution, and animosity are normal for Jesus' followers. The absence of problems and persecution is not an automatic sign of holiness. Just because there's an open door doesn't necessarily mean God wants you to walk through that. What does the world in our own country sell to us? That we want ease and we want comfort and wealth and prosperity and health and the good life and the easy life and retire early and get a million dollars in your bank account. This is what our world is trying to sell us. You can have all those things and not have Jesus. The presence of those things in your life is not an assurance of being hashtag blessed. Just said that out loud, didn't I? Let me go on the other side as well. If there's not as much in the bank account and if your health is suffering and if you have lost ones that are close to you and life is hard, particularly at the hands of the wicked, that's not an automatic indication God has cursed you and loves you not. The health and wealth prosperity gospel is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are tempted as a church to believe if God loves me, God will give me ease and comfort. God will help me to escape from problems. And the reality is we long for our home. This is not our home. And David is dealing with that because he's suffering and he knows what is true and right and he believes all that. But he's suffering at the hands of the wicked and he's calling on God, God, fight for me, help me. And your suffering today may not be specifically in the area of a wicked oppression, but it may just be life is hard. Finances are hard, children are hard, life, marriage, lots of things are hard. And we can turn to a righteous and good God and knowing he will do what is right and just. We long for his kingdom. We long for his salvation. Hear these words from Jesus in John 15 about the world hating us. It's in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Let me skip down to verse 25. But the word that's written in their law must be fulfilled. Listen to these words, because the same thing David said in Psalm 35, they hated me without, without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So one, persecution, hardships are normal. Number two, ask and expect God to save and to vindicate and to execute justice. What, part of what we sing in here as a church is we sing worship and we sing praise, but we also sing songs of lament. My favorite song, if I only could have one for the rest of eternity, would be, is he worthy? Why, you might ask, thank you for asking, is there's lament at the beginning. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. 
And it goes on to ask all of those questions like, do you long for the day when Jesus will come back? And by the end of the song, we're no longer lamenting, but we're singing about the one who is worthy of all praise and all power and all glory, and he'll get it for all of eternity. And we end not with our eyes on the broken world, but with our eyes on the Savior, the King, who alone can break the scrolls, who alone is our Savior. So as you ask God to vindicate you, don't seek vengeance yourself. Some of the best movies are vengeance movies, are they not? You could probably think of one. The Count of Monte Cristo is one, and something happens in the very beginning, and then by the end of the story, you're cheering because the evil, wicked person is in the jail, or whatever they have done to another has been returned upon their own head. But what the Bible is saying is not to seek vengeance yourself. Desire what is right and just. It's easy for us in these moments, and David could have, to harbor personal hatred and bitterness and animosity. You just think, and I'm sure all of you, if I ask you, can you think of somebody you did like really good to them or you meant good, and they returned evil to you? It's so easy to go there. Don't plot revenge and long for someone else's suffering. Don't be a Jonah waiting for someone or a place or a thing to be turned to ashes. Number three, and just in a pastoral moment, lament hard things. It's okay to express grief and to express it to one another over your suffering, even at the hands of others. If you walk into this church every week and you just act like everything's wonderful in your life, can I just say it? One of those weeks you're a liar, and so am I. Everything's not great every week. We, we suffer, we have hard times, there are things that are going on. But as a people, we lament with our eyes on the Lord. Are you with me in that? Because if we lament with our circumstances, we're going to be constantly overwhelmed and depressed. If we lament and grieve with our eyes on self, we're going to either feel really prideful or we're going to be really depressed and discouraged because we don't have the resources to deal with our grief. But if we lament with our eyes on the Lord and think about his character and his promises and what is our future hope, we can lament, yes, but we grieve with hope knowing that this is not the end. He has saved us. He is saving us. He will save us. Our emotions may be raw when we express this grief, but we need to be under control. Our actions and response need to be submission to Christ. How did he teach us to pray? Not my will, but your will. Not my kingdom, but your kingdom. Not my name, but your name. So even as... David is grieving and he's pouring all these things out. Ultimately, he's saying, God, you take care of it. I'm trusting you and my eyes are on you. Delight in the Lord and not in your enemy's demise. Delight in the Lord and not in your enemy's demise. Number four out of five as we wrap up here. Seek justice and God's righteous rule above all else. What I mean by that is seek his justice and not your own. God is not the agent to execute your judgment. I have a pretty profound sense of black and white, pretty clear on that, at least in my own life. And there's sometimes I would love for God to do some things. I'm sure some of you would join me in that and you think this is the right thing to do. Why doesn't God do it? You would never say that you're angry at God and I would never say that. But in our hearts, we wish this is the right thing. Why doesn't God do it? God is not my servant or your servant to do your bidding. 
If you're angry at God or you're wondering, why doesn't God do this thing this way? Welcome to idolatry. Because you've made yourself God and God your servant. And I'm not welcoming you to idolatry for the record. God is not your holy bouncer to remove all the problems in your path. God is not a holy hitman. You can write that one down if you want. <laughs> He's not a holy hitman that you can just pray against people you don't like and who hurt your feelings like, just get them out of my way. You are not the agent to execute what you think is God's judgment. I'm in the grouping here. We, I. You are not the agent of God's wrath and ranger of justice to straighten everyone else out. Don't be a Jonah sitting to watch the destruction of Nineveh. Truly leave it in God's hands. Some of us have some homework after today, do we not? On our heart. Some of us, there's people, if I just mention the name, and I wouldn't know the names, if I just mention the names, that there will be wells, just feelings that would come up really, really quick. That's why as well, like as we want another in this church, these types of feelings and situations we can deal with as, as sheep with one another, as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a totally different thing than what we're dealing with with outside the church. I want to leave you with this, number five. How bad is the sin and suffering you lament? Like why is it so serious that one, like David is so serious about this. Why in our suffering do we feel such pain? Could I invite you to look to the cross with me? to look to the suffering Savior of Jesus Christ because the Son of God spilling his blood on the cross for us shows the seriousness of our sin and the suffering that we have at the hands of others. Are you with me? Like when you grieve and lament for sin and when we cry out to the Lord, we want justice to be done, it's because sin truly is that horrible. So we, we look to the cross, I would invite you to look somewhere else, and that's to the book of Revelation. There is a coming judgment. It's not something we, we talk about a lot, but we don't avoid it at all. As the Bible talks about the lake of fire, there is a real place where real people who are really wicked go for all of eternity. We don't get any glee in that. In fact, it should break our hearts in such a way that as a church we would say, even so, Lord Jesus, yes, come. And until you come, May we be faithful to take the message of salvation to others. Because at the name of Jesus, every name will bow. One group will bow because they have already bowed their knees before their death or before Jesus came back and they are worshiping even now. There will be another group who will know Jesus and they will bow, but not for salvation. It will be at the judgment force because God is sovereign. They will know that he is Lord they will also be separated from him for all of eternity. As a church, we cannot accept the cultural narrative that all people are merely neutral, that everyone can have his truth or your truth or their truth or whatever truth that you want. There is a God. He has spoken. He is righteous. He will judge. And he offers grace. The day of salvation is today. So if you're in church this morning and you think, hey, I've never believed in Jesus. I understand that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done wrong and I'm hearing what you're saying. You want to talk further? I'll be right down here. I would invite you to come. 
Others of you, there's some heart work that you need to do and thinking about inviting Jesus to forgive you based on this. Would you bow with me? Would you stand with me as well? Because after the prayer, we're going to sing a song called Nothing is Wasted. But I want you to stand, and if you bow your head and close your eyes. Fathers, we come to the end of this message this morning. God, we hurt with those who hurt and lament with those who lament and their suffering at the hands of others. And Father, pray that we would not take into our hands what is only yours. And thank you that even in our suffering, you use it for your glory. And Lord, I pray that we'd respond now, realizing that nothing truly is wasted. In Jesus' name, amen.